HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This piece has been brought to you by Bonnie Plants, bonnieplants.com. I'm Jackie Berger, host of Just Food Stories. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. All right. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you, as always, from the back of Roberta's Pizza here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Today, you're listening to The Farm Report, and I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks. And I, I got to start the top of the show by uh, shouting out here at the network. We are in the midst of our summer pledge drive. We do count on the support of our listeners to keep our programming alive. So, if you believe in our work, please uh, take a moment, visit the website, www.heritageradionetwork.org, click the donate tab and become a member. I uh, would love to hear from you and would love to see you um, on the membership rolls. Today, we are jumping into a conversation on micro dairy farming. I'm super excited to be joined on the line by Steve Judge of Bob White Systems. Steve, welcome to the show. My pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. So um, I want to kind of, I guess, like start by ex- getting a sense of what micro dairy farming is. How micro is micro? Well, we generally uh, call it uh, uh, ten cows or less on any one farm, or the equivalent in in goats or sheep or water buffalo. But um, the whole concept is to uh, keep your uh, operation at a scale where you can sell all your milk directly to consumers and uh, maintain control of both your milk and its price. And that's, that's different from kind of the standard dairy model, which is, is often you're selling, you're, you're working, um, milking a much larger group of animals and selling into a, a cooperative system where I feel like I hear dairymen and women often say we're price takers, not price makers. Is that right? Well, that's exactly right. Um, as soon, if you're a large commercial dairy farmer, you lose control of your milk and its price once it's picked up at your farm. Um, and um, that's unfortunate. Uh, any region of the country that can grow grass can also produce milk, and um, many communities in this country could and should have access uh, to delicious locally produced farm-fresh milk and dairy products. And they could. Um, it's just going to take a little bit of rethinking of the dairy industry and, and uh, 
how we deliver milk to consumers. Well, I want to get a little sense before we tuck too much more in at, at kind of your background and, and how you came to start uh, Bob White Systems. Um, can, can you give us a little bit of info on how you got into to agriculture and, and then where the kind of idea to pursue the work you do at Bob White came from? Sure. Um, the short answer is I grew up next to a dairy farm in eastern Massachusetts, and from the time I could walk, I spent most of my days down there uh, uh, with the cows and, and playing in the hay loft and uh, just absorbing uh, what was going on. Um, in high school, I went on to work at that dairy farm. And it, uh, dairy farm is almost always, uh, well, often referred to it as a disease. Once the dairy industry gets into your blood, it's pretty hard to shake it. <laughs> and I haven't just been a dairy farmer all my life. I've worked in heavy construction. Um, I've managed... Uh, several co-ops. I've been a self-employed uh, carpenter, um, and uh, but I always come back to it. I've owned uh, and operated about five dairy farms through, through the years. A couple of those I rented. Um, so it's just been something that I keep going back to because I really enjoy the lifestyle, and um, I also enjoy the politics of it. Um, I enjoy analyzing the system and how it works and, and uh how the milk is delivered and processed and packaged. And uh, it's a fascinating system, and I think there's a lot of room for improvement. I think the current delivery system is really largely obsolete, especially in, in these days when um, uh, energy costs are so high. And uh, so I think that it deserves a rethink, and I think uh, we can make some improvements. And I'm just wondering, you know, so you're you're based out of Vermont now, and and there's like a long you know dairy history um, in that state. And how has the dairy community re- responded to your you know you you proposing a, a rethink? Are you kind of a, a popular guy in the region, or are it, you know is it kind of a mixed bag? I'm just wondering kind of what the what the lay of the land is like for you. I, uh, I think. I, um, we're really talking about a whole new system, a whole new way to deliver milk to customers. And the traditional uh, dairy farms out there have a market. It's a solid market. The co-ops are very good at utilizing their milk. And uh, so what we're doing is, is, is really no competition. There will always be room in the marketplace for commodity milk uh, that's delivered to the metropolitan and suburban portions of the country. We're really talking about creating a, a new method, a new model, um, and um, I think uh, a lot of the people that we do business with are new to agriculture, and they have a fresh outlook and a fresh way of looking at things. So I, I think that uh, in some ways uh, I, I sort of bemuse the traditional dairy farmers in the area. A lot of them thought it was a crazy idea, but as our business has grown and we've picked up customers and we've seen a lot of new small farms start up, um, I think uh, we might be on to something. Well, I want to get into shortly, Lily, the new kind of pasteurization system that you guys have debuted. But before we get there, let's talk a little bit about Bob White Systems. Uh, you know, for folks who haven't had a chance to peruse the website or get a sense, you know, what are we going to you for? What is the service that Bob White is is providing to folks who are looking to kind of enter the agriculture sphere? Well, uh, the mission of Bob White Systems is to promote the local production of safe and delicious farm-fresh milk and dairy products, um, or to put it simply, to keep milk off trucks. 
And um, again, we we believe that a high percentage of fluid milk and dairy products consumed in the U.S. can be produced locally and sold directly to consumers. And there's really no need to be having milk shipped thousands of miles on trucks uh, uh, when it can be uh, locally produced. Um, what we've done is... Uh, um, Really, this, our story began back in 2006 when we decided to try and develop a small-scale HTSD pasteurizer, and we found that uh, this small-scale um, dairy equipment and processing equipment uh, had really um, uh, been allowed to uh, disappear. Uh, the equipment technology had been abandoned, forgotten, uh, consigned to scrap heaps since World War II, and so we had to start from scratch. So our goal to put together this equipment for small-scale producers, um, took us uh, all around the world searching for equipment, um, and um, unfortunately, um, a lot of the regulations in the United States um, don't recognize the safety of the equipment that's made overseas, so that's made our search harder, but we have been successful. And um, so, really, what we're trying to do is put together the equipment needed for micro dairies and, and the local production of milk. All right. So, I think you know it's like such an interesting um, kind of shift in in resources that, as agriculture um, in di- in different areas kind of scales up, the equipment and the resources and the research and tech that goes into that kind of scales up as well. And and then those options, you know, for smaller scale producers, you know, disappear or, or get left behind. And um, so can you, just for folks who are less familiar with the dairy industry, talk about what is this equipment we're talking about? Like, I know you need, you know, kind of cows and a barn for milk, but then what are the other kind of components? Obviously, you know, you have to get the milk out of the cows, you have to pasteurize it, you have to store it and and bottle it? Like, what are the kind of pieces of of equipment along that kind of line if you're looking to keep all of your uh, production essentially on the farm itself? Well, I mean, you can get started with uh, simply a small spot to milk a cow in a bucket and your hands. I mean, you can hand milk a cow. But really, in order to do it efficiently, uh, you um, need a milking machine. Um, uh, Modern cows produce so much milk that it's virtually impossible to milk them by hand effectively um, and time uh, efficiently time-wise. And then you need to cool the milk down really quickly. So if you're milk- only milking one or two cows, you need a very small cooling tank. And there are no small cooling tanks made in the U.S. And, um, and then if you want to, go, if you want to uh, go one step further and bottle your milk with an automatic uh, bottling machine, you need a small, affordable one. Um, and then... Um, uh, you can also look for small cream separators, uh, all, all the equipment that, uh, you know, yogurt uh, vats and capping machines. So there's a whole array of equipment that's just not available to the small-scale producer because the industry has just gone uh, towards bigger and bigger and faster and more efficient equipment. And I want to clarify, you, you said a term uh, earlier, H, HTST, is that... I'm guessing high temperature, short term, but I'm not sure. Well, it's close. High temperature, short time. Short time. Yep. And um, studies and testimonials of all kinds have basically say that uh, milk uh, that's processed uh, by high temperature, short time pasteurization 
is that that produces the highest quality milk as judged by flavor and nutritional value, especially when compared to vat pasteurizers. Um, it used to be thought that vat pasteurizers produce the highest quality milk, but recent studies have turned that notion on its head and, and really HTSD, which essentially you heat the milk up to 100 and 61 or 62 degrees and hold it there for 15 seconds and then you recool it and then you put it into another cooling uh, cooling tank and it's really in our in our machine in our lily the milk is in, isn't in the machine any longer than two minutes if you use a vat pasteurizer the milk could be in the in the vat for four to five hours six hours uh, as you heat it up slowly and cool it down slowly so it's a very efficient uh, way to pasteurize milk, and uh, just happens to be the best way to pasteurize milk as well. And just to clarify, that's like your uh, your opinion, or? Oh no, that's not. It's no longer mine. Okay. <laughs> no, I mean Neville McNaughton of the Cheese Source recently came out with a whole article about uh, about the difference between HTST and and vat pasteurization and. He was very clear in his paper that um, all kinds of evidence points to the fact that HTSD is is a superior way to uh, pasteurize milk, especially for cheese making. Yeah, that was, I guess, my other question is like when thinking about kind of pasteurization, um, you know, the kind of time temperature continuum, how that maybe changes or say this stays the same depending on what the end product you're going for, whether it's fluid milk or yogurt or, or cheese or other, uh, you know, ice cream, other milk products. Is there kind of a one size fits all like pasteurization technique in the industry or does it kind of shift depending on like what you want to actually end up using the milk for? Well, I think that, well, the, in my opinion, uh, the one size that fits all is the HTST. However, unfortunately, uh, in this country, um, delivering fresh milk uh, with a 14-day uh, shelf life um, can sometimes be difficult, especially in small batches. So the industry is, seems to be headed in towards ultra-high pasteurization, which heats up the milk at a much higher temperature and holds it there for a lot less time, but it does a lot more damage to the flavor and the nutritional value of the milk, um, which is unfortunate because it really doesn't need to be that done that way. Uh, good HTSD pasteurization gives the milk plenty of shelf life. Excellent. Um, well, we are going to take just a short break, um, but before we do, I wonder if you can share with us, just because I think it's a nice story, um, the name Bob White, where, where that came from. Uh, that comes from, uh, the, uh, Bob White is actually the eastern quail, and um, the eastern quail uh, in New England was once very common. Uh, it has a distinctive Bob White call that I remember lying in bed and listening to when I was a little kid on hot nights when I couldn't go to sleep. And as the, as the pastures have grown in and, the, and we've uh, experienced reforestation here in in New England, the Bob White has become very rare. However, with the uh, resurgence of small-scale agriculture and the reclamation of some of that habitat, uh, we're beginning to see the Bob White come back, and, and uh, they're becoming um, not common but uh, not unheard of. Excellent. Thanks so much, Steve. We're going to take just a short break, and when we come back, I want to talk about the Lily. So hang tight. You're listening to the Heritage Radio Network, and we'll be right back.
Hi, I'm Grace Bonney, host of After the Jump. This summer, Heritage Radio Network is turning five. Since our launch in 2009, we've continued to bring you food and culture content like nobody else. And we need your help. HeritageRadioNetwork.org is a passionate, grassroots, action-oriented, nonprofit organization. That means we depend on the support from listeners like you to keep us alive. If you love what you hear on Heritage Radio Network, visit our website and become a member today. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. Hello, do-it-yourselfer. Ever thought about gardening? If you can build that window box, you can build a raised bed in your backyard. Bonnie Veggie and Herb Plants in Raised Beds make a fast weekend project with a big payback. Fresh, grow them yourself tomatoes and peppers, kale, basil and thyme, and so much more. Bonnie plants are healthy and strong and help jumpstart your garden. So get growing. Plans and how-tos at bonnieplants.com. This is Brooks Headley, the pastry chef at Del Posto in Manhattan, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network. All right, we're back. You're tuned into the Farm Report, and we are on the line with Steve Judge of Bob White Systems. We're talking about uh, small-scale dairy farming and dairy production in the Northeast. So, Steve, tell us about Lily. Um, I feel like it. To me, I love the name. I, I know it's an acronym, but it, it sounds like some kind of like wonderful kind of companion machine that you know has like a personality I, I don't know i'm like anthropomorphizing it but um um what give it give us a lowdown on the lily sure um you know we as small scale farming is is uh, uh having a um uh is coming back to the in the u.s small scale dairy especially um we recognize that as uh major segment of the population would prefer to drink locally produced raw milk. However, that puts limitations on the market because we also know that a sizable segment would prefer to drink locally produced pasteurized milk. And uh, so our goal uh, was to give uh, small-scale community-based dairies the opportunity to sell pasteurized milk as well as raw milk. And um, we wanted to develop a machine that would produce pasteurized milk that was as close as possible to raw milk in terms of flavor and nutritional value as possible. And um, and that our whole uh, journey began back in 2006 when we began to search for uh, a suitable pasteurizer. And um, we weren't able to find one that exists out there in the marketplace. So after a couple of years of searching, we determined that uh, we were going to have to design and build uh, them ourselves. And uh, that was eight years ago, and we finally received FDA approval for our lily uh, this past November in 2013. And uh, we recently made our first sale to a farm in New York. Wow. Well, congratulations. So, um, Thank you. You know, <laughs> It's like it's one thing to kind of you know get on the internet and search around. And you're like, oh, I want to find a small batch, you know, pasteurization. It's a wholly other thing to think about kind of designing and producing a machine to do so. What does that process look like? I mean, where does one even start? Oh, that's a good question. Um, basically, I just started searching for small scale pasteurizers there. It wasn't as if there wasn't one available, but at that time, back in 2006, any small HTST pasteurizer was a custom-built design and built uh, on-site and was a one-off. 
Um, what we wanted to do is develop a very simple, inexpensive machine that we could put in a box and ship anywhere in the world like a personal computer. And um, and so we had to standardize the design, uh, make it modular, and uh, make it a, a consistent machine that would work anywhere we, we delivered it. And uh, so, it you know, essentially you're, you're looking at a pump, you're looking at a heat source, you're looking at a heat exchanger, and uh, some safety valves and uh, a few temperature recording devices, and, and that's it. Um, unfortunately, the, uh, the FDA has a very rigid uh, definition of what an HTST pasteurizer should look like because they're concerned about safety, public safety. So um, we designed one that w- we were confident worked, and we know it did work, uh, but it was very innovative and included some pieces of equipment that are not normally found on HTSD machines. And we just couldn't get the FDA to say this was a good machine. And so we had to modify the design and add some additional components and swap out some pumps for pumps that the FDA was familiar with. And um, uh, and that's why it came in a little bit more expensive than we wanted, but we were still really happy with the machine. Yeah, and I think it's like you're kind of touching on this really interesting kind of food and, and tech space and because you're working in food production because it is a regulated environment there's this whole other kind of government agency that needs to be involved in that kind of innovation process and i think challenges when you're looking in particular at producing things for small scale uses is the you know the financing um how how are how were you able to kind of finance the research and development of the product well, I've been I've had other businesses and have uh, acquaintances and and former business partners who have confidence in in um, the myself and the organization I've put together and luckily they've been very patient through this whole process because even though the uh, the progress has been slow, it has been steady and uh, we had been working with the FDA so they have been willing to continue to fund our R&D in that area. Uh, in the meantime, the other aspect of our business, which is selling all sorts of other small-scale uh, milk handling and processing equipment, has grown to the point where that's producing a significant income, which is helping offset the R&D costs at this point. So um, we still have a ways to go, but uh, things are definitely on the upswing, and we have a great group of investors who have been very supportive yeah, my sense is that's like a, a new, a new, a newer space for folks to think about in, investing in, in innovations in in the kind of food sphere. Um, I also was curious to know that on your website you're offering financing for folks who want to purchase the machine, and I'm wondering, just because I don't know, is that kind of like a, a typical offering, and and why you decide to do that, and what some of the kind of like challenges of of setting up that aspect of the business have been. Well, um, it's actually quite common in agriculture. I mean, uh, any kind of agricultural equipment these days is very expensive, and it's very rare for any farmer to be able to just write a check. Uh, I mean, I back when I was a kid working on a farm in Conway, Massachusetts, the farmer I was working for decided to sell his cows because he went to get a new buy a new tractor and he found he couldn't pay for it uh, from the cash he had on hand and wasn't going to take a loan out. So he sold his cows. But nowadays, uh, you know, financing is, is very common in agriculture. 
and there are many organizations that are used to, to doing agricultural uh, loans. So we don't provide the, the uh, financing ourselves or the lease programs ourselves, but we are connected to agricultural organizations, financing organizations that do, and we can help people locate them and make the connections and, and get them up and running. Well, so, like, let's talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of the Lily. Like, what is the kind of, like, volume that it's designed to handle? And I, it's also interesting that you can pasteurize other kind of non, non-dairy non items as well. So how do you kind of anticipate uh, folks using it, and, and what's the kind of scale that folks can expect it to be able to manage? Well, our, our standard uh, uh, Lily... Um pasteurizes at a rate of two gallons per minute. Uh, the one, the first prototype we designed uh, went uh, one gallon per minute. But when we had to raise the price, we decided to double the output so people would get more for their money. Um, and um, it's really uh, uh, um, does a great job with the milk um, because it is so gentle. We've had uh, the nutritional uh, value of our milk that's been run through a lily analyzed by a lab. Um, and uh, believe it or not, there is not much difference between um, our milk and raw milk, uh, especially in the flavor end of it, but there's very little in terms of nutritional losses or degradation, which we're really, really excited about. But um, it uh, all it requires is a 220-amp service, a 120-amp service, and a, a water supply and a floor drain, and you just plug it in and go. It's uh, not a complicated machine to run. In fact, when people come to see demos of the machine, um, we caution them that it's actually pretty boring. You're just pushing <laughs> a couple of just pushing a couple of buttons and and standing there and watch the machine work because at the beginning of the cycle, it, it sanitizes itself with hot water. You don't have to use any chemicals. It then moves into the pasteurization phase at two gallons per minute. So if you have 100 gallons of milk to pasteurize, it takes 50 minutes. And then you put it into the uh, clean phase um, or cycle, and it completely cleans itself, uh, requires no attendance. um, And uh, you can just, once you're done with the pasteurization and put it into the cleaning mode, you can walk away and go do whatever you want to do. So compared to a vat pasteurizer, it is... uh, just a huge uh, time saver. And what what's the size of it? I mean, could I put it in my Brooklyn apartment or? Yeah, you'd probably have trouble getting it up the stairs, though. Um, <laughs> it's about six feet tall, five feet wide, um, uh, or five feet long, and two feet wide. So it's very compact for, for the job it does. It has its own heat supply. Um, like I said, all you got to do is plug it in and, and go. Um, it's, it's really pretty simple and it's kind of nifty it's uh you know we i really enjoy running it so it, do you envision i mean i guess like in you know your magic like steve judge world where you have complete kind of control and power that that's the world i often imagine <laughs> is 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 uh, i mean where i have complete control and power not you but we'll see we'll see um yeah. it, you know do you see this being um, kind of this shift looking like, you know, this kind of rise in small-scale micro-dairies kind of across the Northeast where folks are coming onto the farm to pick up, you know, their weekly share of, like, milk and cheese and yogurt? Or, I mean, how do you, how does it kind of, like, play out? You know, what's the kind of next step? Well, um, 
the, uh, unfortunately, it does cost more than we had anticipated. However, we still do get many inquiries from uh, micro dairies. But what it plugs into is really the local food movement and people wanting to know where their food comes from. And, you know, if you're buying milk from the farm down the road and you can see the cows and you can visit the farm and see how clean it's kept and how clean the cows are, I think that's what people are looking for. So we, uh, you know, we generally... The inquiries that we've received so far from dairy farmers are people milking maybe 20, uh, 10 to 20, all the way up to 200 cows. And though the larger farmers just want to pasteurize and sell a, a portion of their production locally, usually on farm stores or, you know, do home delivery or, or whatever. But we're still letting the, the market kind of determine what the highest and best use of the lily is. Um, We've had calls from people who want to pasteurize beer, uh, sugarcane juice, coffee products, coffee drinks. So, the you know anything that needs to be pasteurized that has the same viscosity as fluid milk, um, we can we can the, the lily can do it. Um, if somebody wanted to pasteurize thicker uh, fluids such as uh, ice cream mix or cream itself, we'd have to make a couple of modifications. But they're easy, and we can still build a machine that can do that as well. So for all those kind of Brooklyn homesteaders looking to start their own, you know, kind of juice or, or coffee or, or drink business, this might be a, an, an interesting small-scale option for them. Yeah, yeah, it would be, especially, yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, it's pretty easy and effortless to operate, and it's very inexpensive to operate as well. The energy use is, is very low. It, you know, it's about, uh, it's less than a dollar a run, actually, so in terms of energy consumption. So, um it's, uh, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very efficient. I want to just go, go back and touch again on, um, on the kind of traditional milk and milk pricing system, just, just because I think it's, it's like, it's an important thing to undergird for our listeners. You know, obviously you go to the supermarket and you buy milk, milk is, you know, a staple. There's a certain expectation of price. And I'm wondering if you can just talk a, a little bit more about kind of, you know, historically, how how those prices have um, changed for the actual kind of farmer, and what h- how essentially like your system brings a new alternative to that space for farmers to kind of control what they're getting for their production. Well, I, I, uh, our concept is really no different than any other direct sales concept. Um, uh, by processing and packaging and selling your own milk, uh, you cut out the middleman, especially if you sell directly to the public. Um, and uh, or you can do a little bit better if you uh, sell wholesale to local to local markets to sell as well. But you know, historically in this country, the problem has been that milk. Um, U.S. dairy farmers are extremely intelligent and extremely efficient, and they can produce a lot of milk for very not for not very much money. And as a result, the the milk supply in this country is in almost a chronic state of oversupply. Recently, exports have have taken have been able to pick up the slack a little bit and get more milk off the market, but that oversupply has constantly had a depressing uh, depressing effect on the on the prices that farmers receive for their milk so and this has been something that's been going on for uh, you know generations and uh, certainly all my life and I've been in the dairy business for 50 years um, 
But uh, so the alternative is to sell your milk directly. There are other alternatives that are in place in other countries in the world, but politically I don't think they would work here in the U.S. and have never been, uh, uh, so far haven't been adopted. So right now the, the first and best and most logical alternative to get more money for your milk is to process it yourself and sell it directly. Well, so we're just about out of time, but I wanted to share I, one of the kind of fun fun parts of your website. There was some kind of um, you know fun facts, I guess, about about cows, and I just want to share a few that I was surprised to learn. Um, one, you know, relating to milk that it that it takes approximately ten pounds of milk to equal one pound of cheese, and that uh, a, a cow produces on average a hundred pounds of manure a day, which blew my mind. Um, <laughs> And then kind of this last one I wanted to kind of touch on with you before we, we say goodbye was that cows enjoy music but not rock music. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Uh, quickly, uh, basically music for cows in a barn is like white noise. It basically filters out any loud or intrusive noises that may scare them. So if you have nice, soft music playing in the background, it will... Um, um, it, basically filter out any clanging of metal gates or anything that might startle the cows. And when cows are startled, they can, if they're lying down, they can get up quickly and injure themselves. So it's nice to have some good background music that's uh, soothing for the cows. And um, they don't like heavy metal, but a little bit of, you know, uh, rock and roll and country or something like that they, they, they like, as long as it's just not really in- invasive. Awesome. Well, uh, Steve, thank you so much for joining us and sharing some of your work today. It's been really great talking with you. Great. Well, I hope your listeners go to our website, uh, bobwhitesystems.com, and explore it. I think it's a lot of fun. Excellent. Uh, I would would definitely recommend it for the trivia facts alone. Okay, great. Thanks so much again to everyone out there tuning in. Uh, Just a final reminder, we are doing the membership drive this month, so please uh, consider visiting the website. Uh, where you can check out all 35 of our weekly shows, our daily news content, and you can click that Donate tab to become a member today. You can also find our programs on Stitcher and iTunes if you prefer to listen to us there. And then we would love to see your support on our social media streams. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, you know, whatever your pleasure is, we're there. Thanks so much again for listening to The Farm Report, and keep tuned in. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.